All right, how's everybody doing today? Hotel Pay, this is Michael M. Hotel, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a talk show host, researcher, lecturer, writer, and historian. It is Thursday, July 14th, 2022, and we are live. So this is class number six of a 10-week online class that I teach called From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. And normally I teach this class on Sundays, but my schedule has been uh, crazy. And then we had uh, uh, Juneteenth and I was speaking all over the place for the Juneteenth weekend. So um, this is uh, the first class we've done since uh, last class I was going back. We, we did the last class uh, June 12th. Okay, and this is a 10 week online class that I teach normally at our online school, but I said I'll teach a uh, special free class tonight. This is class number six. I said I'll teach a special free class tonight because a lot of people are interested uh, in the class, interested in this subject matter. So I said I'll go ahead and do that. All right. So give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like uh, on this broadcast. Share this broadcast on your social media platforms as well. Invite your friends to tune in also. Uh, and this class is uh, normally on uh, normally $130. Right now it's on sale $60. We have the uh, information to register in the thread of the broadcast. And it's also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right, now and it's also, and I just want to check the audio. So how am I coming through? Uh, let me know. Can you all hear me? Can you all see me okay? because we're about to start. In this class, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, and we deal with history from um, uh, starting, in, starting in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase, okay? Starting in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution. And we deal with history chronologically through to the Civil War, uh, Reconstruction Era, um, the Jim Crow era, World War I, World War II, Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, okay? So that's what we deal with in this class. Today's session, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about bleeding Kansas in 1854, 1855, and this is gonna be one of the things that leads to the U.S. Civil War taking place, okay? Bleeding Kansas, and we're gonna get into the U.S. Civil War, uh, 1861 to 1865, all right? so. I want to make sure everybody can hear me okay. We got Shalinda, Josh, uh, James, uh, everybody watching. I'm going to post the um, information here on the thread of the broadcast. You can register uh, for this. Uh, you can register for this class also. It's normally on Sundays, uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. So. Uh, once you register, you can go back and watch the previous classes as well, okay? And uh, even after the 10-week online course is over with, you still have full access to the class. So a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire course. Um, as a result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, you're going to have the Republican Party founded in 1854 as well. As I explained to people, and a lot of people don't know this history, um, for the majority of the time that slavery existed in this country, you did not have a Democratic or Republican Party, okay? 
for the majority of time that slavery existed in this country, you did not have a Democratic or Republican Party. The Democratic Party was founded in 1828. They were known as Jacksonian Democrats. The Republican Party is founded in 1854. All right. So if we look at this timeline of history quickly, then uh, I'm going to go to the PowerPoint presentation. Then we're going to look at some articles here. Uh, we look at 1854. Uh, the Massachusetts State Legislature outlaws racially segregated schools in 1854. Now, we know Massachusetts was also one of the first um, colonies to abolish slavery right around 1780. And that's even before the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, where they draft the uh, U.S. Constitution. Okay, now let's see, let's continue. Um, 1854, William C. Nail of Boston publishes The Colored Patriots of the American Revolution, considered the history, the first history of African Americans, considered the first history of African Americans. That's 1855. 1855, in November 1855, John Mercer Langston elected um, uh, elected town clerk of Brownham Township in Ohio, becoming the first African-American elected official in the state of Ohio. This is 1855. This is John Mercer Langston. Okay, 1855, Frederick Douglass, uh, who I think Donald Trump still thinks is alive, he said when he was uh, in February, like the first Black History Month that was commemorated in the White House, he said, Frederick Douglass, he's hearing more and more about Frederick Douglass each day. Frederick Douglass is doing great work, something like that, something ridiculous. Frederick Douglass is nominated by the Liberty Party of New York for the office of Secretary of State. He is the first African-American candidate in any state to be nominated for a statewide office. 1856, Wilberforce uh, University becomes the first school of higher learning owned and operated by African-Americans. Uh, it is founded by the African-American, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Bishop Daniel L. Payne becomes uh, the institution's first president. Okay, and we know that it's uh, uh, AME Church is gonna be uh, Richard Allen, uh, who uh, founds the uh, AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, 1857, we talked about this, uh, is either last class or class before, got decision March 6, 1857, is handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, contrary to popular belief, so a lot of people focus on uh, um, Justice uh, Taney saying that uh, a white man has no, uh, sorry, a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to uh, recognize or honor. But probably the most important thing in um, that decision dealt with the um, Missouri Compromise of eight, dealt with the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Okay, if we look at the Dred Scott decision very quickly here, it um, and just for, just for those that don't know who are seeing this class for the first time, there are two binders that I teach from for this class. This is one of those binders. This is the first binder. Okay, because we're dealing with history from 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution through 1968. So this is the type of information that I deal with in these classes. These are all articles that I deal with in this class, okay? And these are articles we show you here. So if you haven't taken this course before, this is your first time, you can register right now for this 10-week online course. And this time around, we'll probably do 11 or 12 sessions. And you can go back and watch the previous classes. Very quickly here, just for reference, if we look at 
this article here dealing with the Dred Scott decision. It's important to understand that um, the Supreme Court ruled that, that the Missouri Compromise of 1820 was unconstitutional. What the Missouri Compromise of 1820 did, this was one of the uh, things that was designed to, uh, one of the bills that was designed to keep a civil war from taking place, just like the Compromise of 1850. The, the Missouri Compromise of 1820, and I wanna go to a particular section here. Missouri Compromise of 1820 uh, organized the land that uh, the U.S. got from France uh, through the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, okay? And it stated that uh, it allowed Missouri to come into the Union as a slaveholding state, and it allowed uh, Maine to come into the Union as a free state. And um, what it did was it uh, prohibited slavery in the remaining territory, okay? It prohibited slavery in the remaining territory. Now, the Supreme Court ruled uh, that the Missouri Compromise of 1850 um, violated the Fifth Amendment rights of those people living in those other territories. And it ruled that the Missouri Compromise of 1820 uh, was unconstitutional. And this helped to nullify uh, Dred Scott's argument, whose real name was Sam Blow. This helped to nullify his argument because Wisconsin was one of the territories that he was taken into, and it was free territory. It was free territory because of the Missouri Compromise of 1820. So the uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruled that that was unconstitutional. They ruled that it violated uh, the Fifth Amendment right of the people living in that territory. So this helped to nullify Dred Scott's legal, uh, legal argument. He did get his freedom uh, some months after that decision, he and his family did get their, their freedom some, some months after that decision. But the decision also argued that the Missouri Compromise legislation um, passed to balance power between slaveholding states and non-slave states. Non-slaveholding states was unconstitutional. Okay, this is what the U.S. Supreme Court ruled. So when a lot of people talk about the Dred Scott decision, they leave this out. This is, this is something very important. In effect, this meant that Congress had no power to prevent the spread of slavery. This is going. To, this decision is going to be one of the things that escalates the abolitionist movement that brings us closer to the U.S. Uh, Civil War taking place. And we know the U.S. Civil War starts uh, April 12, 1861, with the attack on Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Now, the state. Uh, and let me just back up for a quick minute here. Um, Chief Justice Roger Taney. Uh, Roger Taney was born in the Southern aristocracy and became the fifth Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Taney um, became best known for writing the final majority opinion in Dred Scott versus Sandford, S-A-N-D-F-O-R-D, Dred Scott versus Sandford, which said uh, that all people of African descent, free or enslaved, were not US, United States citizens and therefore had no right to sue in federal court. In addition, he wrote that the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, okay, uh, which deals with due process of law, the Fifth Amendment uh, protected slave owner rights because enslaved workers were their legal property. Now, we know it's going to be the 14th Amendment of 1868, which, which uh, changes 
that status of African-Americans is going to be the 14th Amendment of 1868 that does this. Now, the decision also argued that the Missouri Compromise legislation passed to balance the power uh, between slave and non-slaveholding uh, states was unconstitutional, okay? Despite Taney's long tenure, despite Taney's long tenure uh, as a Supreme Court justice, people vilified him for his role in the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision. In an ironic historical footnote, uh, Chief Justice Taney would later swear in Abraham Lincoln, who some people call the great emancipator. We talked about Lincoln last class and how Lincoln was not an abolitionist, uh, how Lincoln, um, the Civil War was about keeping the Union together as opposed to freeing the enslaved Africans. Uh, so Lincoln, the great emancipator, as president of the United States in 1861. Okay. All right. And then we know Dred Scott is going, going to go on to win his freedom as well. All right, so read the rest of this. And they they uh, they kept a balance between slaveholding states and free states. So 1820, there were 11 slaveholding states and 11 free states. How many people have never heard of the Missouri Compromise of 1820? This is one of the things that uh, is going to lead to the Civil War taking place, okay? Uh, somebody said the image is blurry. All right, I'm not sure. How am I coming through? People let me know how I'm coming through. Let me try to monitor the broadcast here. Um, also, uh, you have to change your, um, when you watch on Facebook, there's an option for, um, when you watch on Facebook, there's an option for resolution. It's a little spinning wheel. If you watch on Facebook, click on that little spinning wheel. Okay. So if I go just to show you quickly here, those watching, uh, especially on Facebook and even YouTube, let me know how am I coming through. Can you hear me okay? Is the uh, quality of the video all right? You may have to change the the DPI, the dots uh, the dots per inch. You may have to change the resolution. If you watch on Facebook, for instance, okay, if you click right here, let me blow this up for a minute. If you click right here, right. you may have to change the, and turn down the sound. If you click right here, the little spinning wheel says settings. You click on settings, okay, and then it shows you quality. Sometimes that quality is set to 240p, okay? If you set it to 240p, it's going to be blurry. You can set it to 720p. You can set it to 1080p. 1080p gives you the highest resolution. That's dots per inch, okay? 720 gives you, uh, it's pretty good also. So you can adjust that. OK, if you watch on, on Facebook, you can do the same thing on um, you can do the same thing on YouTube. OK, you can adjust it on YouTube um, on YouTube. You go to. Let's see here. Let's pull up YouTube and on YouTube, it is. Uh, the same, it's the same spinning wheel as well on YouTube, okay? You can, let's flip over to my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep on YouTube. You go right here to settings, that little spinning wheel, click on settings. It shows you quality is set. My settings are at automatically 480p. You can set it to 720p. You can set it to 1080p to give you a higher resolution, okay? So that's uh, dealing with understanding uh, the settings there in Facebook and YouTube. All right, let's continue here. So y'all can hear me? Okay, that's good. Let's continue. 
share this broadcasting and social media platforms invite your friends to tune in because these this is part of a 10-week online class that's a paid class so usually i don't do this uh free on facebook and youtube uh, we have other stuff some other stuff that's free but this class is not there all right let's go back to uh so that was just dylan uh, briefly dressed scott pace okay let's go to the timeline of history this timeline of history comes from uh, blackpast.org, P-A-S-T, blackpast.org. They have about 6,000 pages dealing with African history and African-American history, blackpast.org. So this is one of the sources I used to teach from in the class. 1858, Arkansas enslaves free blacks who refused to leave the state, in the state of Arkansas. Uh, as I've talked about before, the history of slavery in this country is very nuanced. Different states had different laws. All of the colonies, all the states did not free uh, enslaved Africans at the same time. In last class, we talked, um, the class I did June 12th, we talked some about the history of Juneteenth. And if you've seen my broadcast here on our Facebook and YouTube channel, dealing with how Juneteenth was not the last day of slavery, all the enslaved Africans in Texas were not freed on Juneteenth as well. Uh, we know that uh, General Major General Gordon Granger and his approximately 2,000 Union troops, many of them African-Americans, are going to go throughout Texas uh, for about a year, up to a year, to enforce General Order Number 3, letting enslaved Africans know that they were free. But we also know that um, what legally frees the enslaved Africans is the 13th Amendment ratified December 6, 1865, when Georgia ratifies the 13th Amendment. Okay, uh, You're going to have some slave owners in uh, Texas like Martha Gibbs, okay? In last class, we talked about the uh, overlooked role of uh, the massive overlooked role of female slave owners. Uh, and there's a, there's a two and a half hour lecture I have dealing with the, you know, the history of Juneteenth and things like this. Uh, that's at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, okay? All right, so uh, this, this article right here, the massive overlooked role of female slave owners. This is from history.com, official website of the History Channel. It's estimated that 40% of slave owners may have been white women. It's estimated that 40% of slave, slave owners may have been white women. That's looking at uh, Census Bureau data and other data from uh, between 1850 and 1860, and that's coming from research from uh, Professor Stephanie E. Jones Rogers. Professor Stephanie E. Jones Rogers, who's a history professor at the University of California, Berkeley. And she has a book that came out in 2019 called They Were Her Property. They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners. They Were Her Property, okay? All right, now, um, very quickly, there's a, uh, there's a white woman named uh, Martha Gibbs, okay? And let me pull this up here. Uh, there's a white woman named Martha Gibbs who uh, she kept her enslaved Africans until 1866 and she was from Mississippi. So Texas was a Texas was a safe haven for many slave owners because Texas was more removed from battles during the Civil War. So um, a lot of slave owners are going to take their African slaves into Texas. All right. And Martha Gibbs was one of them. Martha Gibbs uh, was a white female slave owner. She came from Mississippi. White women also fought to maintain the wealth and free labor that slavery provided them through the Civil War. As Union troops made their way through the South, freeing enslaved African people, white women would move uh, enslaved people 
farther from the soldier's path. One white woman named Martha Gibbs, okay, M-A-R-T-H-A, Martha Gibbs, even took enslaved African people to Texas and forced them to work for her at gunpoint until 1866, a year after slavery's formal abolition, a year after uh, Juneteenth, where we commemorate June 19th, 1865. And the, um, there was about 250,000 enslaved Africans in Texas. They're going to get different groups of them get the news that they're free over the course of months, okay? June 19th is the date that was agreed upon to commemorate them getting th those Africans in uh, Texas, getting the news, especially Galveston, Texas, all right? But it's gonna be more white slave owners who keep their slaves until 1866. So it's not the last day of slavery in this country. It wasn't the last day of slavery in Texas. And the other thing that's important to understand is that Maryland did not abolish slavery until uh, November 1st, 1864, okay? Maryland didn't abolish slavery until November 1st, 1864. And that was almost two years after Juneteenth as well, okay? So, um, and that's after the Emancipation Proclamation uh, also. So when the, the, the real history of slavery in this country is much different than um, the way it's presented, especially in the media. And there's some people in the media who mean well and things like this, but like I said in my, my Juneteenth presentations, I spent half the day like on June 19th and uh, leading up to that and after it you know, cussing at the TV because I'm listening to these white reporters and people on MSNBC and things like this saying Juneteenth was the last day of slavery. No, it was not. No, it wasn't in this country. You can just do a basic, I mean, if you just understand that the 13th Amendment wasn't ratified till December 6, 1865, you would know that, okay? And, uh, and I hear people saying the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slave. No, it did not. That means you never read the Emancipation Proclamation. If you go to archives.gov or loc.gov, which is the Library of Congress website. They have all these exceptions because Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, and Delaware stayed loyal to the union and they were allowed to keep their slaves, okay? If you look right here, this is very, very quickly, and then we're gonna continue and get into the Civil War, okay? You look at this article here from uh, the Washington Post. And I monitor about 35 different news sources on a daily basis. Some of you may have heard me call in the Reverend Al Sharpton show today and break down uh, policies from the Biden-Harris administration, provide documentation about how they're helping the African-American community. There's a 19-page document at whitehouse.gov that you've heard me talk about here on the African History Network show. I've gone through and broke down the entire 19-page document. Very few people talk about this. And, we, and I dealt with the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and who blocked that bill, Senator Tim Scott, Black Tea Party Republican of South Carolina. He's up for re-election November 2022. He needs to be voted out of office because we don't understand how to vote, remove these obstacles that are blocking these bills that we're trying to get. Okay. So I called in the Reverend Al Sharpton show today and they, they have the replay of it of WERE 1490 out of Cleveland. So you, you'll probably hear me on his show again very soon. But this article right here, the not quite free state, Maryland dragged its feet on emancipation during civil during the Civil War. This is from September 13, 2013, okay? It goes through and breaks down elsewhere in the country, anti-slavery measures 
and let me know let me know how this is coming through everybody i want everybody to be able to see this okay so i'm going to increase the the size of it everybody should be able to see this all right um elsewhere in the country anti-slavery measures progressed rapidly congress freed the slaves in the district of columbia in 1862 compensating their owners okay so that's the emancipated uh that's the compensated emancipation act of 1862 we're going to talk about that in a minute because the slave owners in washington dc were paid reparations president lincoln signed off on that that was april 1862 all right i i hear some people who misinterpret that law and think it applied to all of the slave owners in the United States. No, 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 that was just in the District of Columbia. I was on a panel discussion uh, dealing with reparations here in Detroit a few months ago, and somebody said, oh, the slave owners in, in the U.S. got reparations. No, that's just in the District of Columbia, okay? It's not all of the slave owners in the South, things like this. They got, the slave owners did get their land back, so the majority of them did get their land back that was part of um, the special field order number 15, 40 acres in the mule, that 400,000 acres of coastal land in South Carolina, Florida, and Georgia. Keep in mind, I, I know people talk about reparations. I'm all for reparations and repairing the damage of a legacy of slavery, Jim Crow segregation, uh, red, uh, uh, redlining, housing discrimination, things like that. Okay. We have to understand how to make legal arguments for reparations, number one. Under, uh, number two, we have to adequately assess the damage of 246 years of slavery and, uh, uh, and 157 years of history after that to understand what it is that we're actually repairing. Just, just trying to get monetary compensation because our ancestors did not get paid for slavery does not adequately address the, the damage that was done and continues to be done by laws and policies that maldistribute wealth upon resources into the hands of Europeans. That's why the study that uh, the California Reparations Task Force released a couple months ago, that 500-page study, that's why that is so powerful. That's why that's so important, because that really documents the damage that was done, not just in California, but across the country, and how African Americans are still being harmed. And it lays out these laws and policies that continue to do us harm. Those are laws and policies that have to be changed. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. Politics is not just voting. Voting is one, one aspect of politics. That's one part of politics, but it's part of a, of a greater whole. So we, we have to understand leveraging our economics to enforce our political agenda, and you have got to change those laws and policies that are in place that continue to do us harm, whether you talk about the racial wealth gap, whether you talk about African-American women making 62 cents or 63 cents on the dollar that the average white male makes, and it takes the average African-American woman 20 months to make the same amount of money that the average white male makes in, in, in 12 months. That's called Black Women's Equal Pay Day, which usually occurs sometime in August, okay? All that is a legacy of, of slavery, Jim Crow segregation, redlining, being discriminated against when it comes to um, African-American veterans from World War II being able to take full advantage of the GI Bill, et cetera, okay? Now, very quickly, then I wanna get back to the class. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves in the states that had seceded from the Union went into effect January 1st, 1863. So the Emancipation Proclamation basically stated, um, the states and territories in rebellion, those slaves would be freed on January 1st, 1863, 
if they did not come back into the union. It excluded Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, and Delaware, those border states that stayed loyal to the union. They were allowed to keep their slaves, okay? But Maryland did not act until 1864 when it held a referendum, and even then the outcome wasn't at all certain. The vote tipped in favor of abolition only after the absentee ballots of soldiers fighting for the North were counted. So in, in Maryland, they put free and slaves on the ballot. They were, Maryland was exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. This is why some of the stuff that we were taught in school and our teachers meant well and they did the best they could. Some of that stuff is BS. We were taught in school, I know I was, the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves and Lincoln was a great man, all this stuff. Come on. No, it did not. The final tally was 30,174 in favor of freeing the slaves to 29,799. They put it on the ballot. This is after the emancipation. This is almost two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. On November 1st, 1864, Maryland's African slaves were declared free only a few months before Congress would approve the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. So when I hear people, when I, when I hear, and I heard it all throughout the media, and I was going crazy listening to this stuff, okay, for Juneteenth. I was going crazy. Uh, Emancipation Proclamation, Free the Slaves. I'm watching MSNBC. I'm like, who the hell did the historical research for these segments? None of them, no, I think maybe only one person. It may have been Joanne Reed. It was, I think only one person talked about Maryland, Maryland not freeing its African slaves to November 1st, 1864 which is almost two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. How is it that that is left out of history? How is it that that is left out of history? Many African-Americans in Maryland had taken matters into their own hands by the time either escaping to the District of Columbia or enlisting in the Union Army where they served as free men. And they fought in the war because they wanted to go kill their former slave masters. The, 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 the Southerners, the, oh, they, they wanted to go and, 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 and redistribute the pain to, to those uh, slave owners in the, in the South that, who were part of the Confederacy. Well known in the modern era for being a politically progressive state, especially on matters of civil and individual rights, Maryland came to that tradition slowly and with substantial reluctance. Maryland came to that tradition slowly and with substantial reluctance. Indeed, as the Civil War loomed, much of Maryland remained firmly pro-slavery. Now, Maryland is, they were part of the Union. They stayed loyal to the Union. But much of Maryland was, remained firmly pro-slavery. Even such as Maryland luminary, uh, even such a Maryland luminary as Montgomery Blair, President Abraham Lincoln's postmaster general was concerned about punishing secessionists, those succeeding from the union, secessionists, and preserving the union than advan advancing freedom for African-Americans. Because the, the Civil War was about keeping the union together. The, 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 the South was the economic engine of the union. Lincoln wanted to keep the union together. The, fight, the Civil War was not fought to free the slaves. That is a there's a shift that takes place in the Civil War because of the Emancipation Proclamation and the, um, the, the, the shift moves towards freeing the slaves after the Emancipation Proclamation. 
as opposed to keeping the union together, which causes rifts and causes a backlash like the July 1863 um, New York City draft riot, which we'll talk about. Uh, we talked about that last class. New York, let me say, hold on. We'll talk about this class because uh, that's 1863 and Civil War starts 1861. So we'll, if we don't get to this class, we'll talk about it in this class. Um, read the rest of this article here. Okay, this is from the Washington Post. I read the Washington articles from the Washington Post every day. I monitor about 35 different news sources on a daily basis. Been doing radio 12 years. I'm on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday uh, as a panelist. Doing, I'll, I'll be on tomorrow uh, doing political analysis and uh, uh, historical analysis, things like that. Okay, so a lot of people see me, um, and uh, I do local radio here in Detroit, 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation WFDF. Uh, how, so how's everybody doing? How you all like this type of information? Okay. Uh, also, with this 10-week online class, you can use this information with your children. I would say the content is PG-13. I don't do a lot of cursing. It's not overly graphic and vulgar, things like that. I don't, I don't do things like that. Okay. But um, if you register for this, you can use that registration with your family. Those living in your household, you can use that registration with your family. We have the information here in the thread of the broadcast to register for the this full 10-week online class uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 and 1968. Okay, I want to go back to uh, the timeline of history quickly, then I want to get to the Civil War. And if you need me to post the link again, I'll post the link again. It's also at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Um, and we have a bundle pack where you can register for both, both classes that I teach, including my Saturday class. You can register for both classes for a hundred dollars. Okay, on Saturdays, um, I teach uh, from the civil. Uh, I teach uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Maafa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. That's normally on um, Saturdays, two p.m. to four p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we have a class this Saturday uh, from the ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Maafa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We have a bundle pack where you can register with both classes uh, for $100. That's a, basically about a $360 value. Okay. Uh, 1859, going back to the timeline of history, 1859, Harriet Wilson of Milford, New Hampshire, publishes Our Night, uh, uh, sorry, Our Nig, or sketches from the life of a free black first novel by an African-American woman. This is Harriet Wilson of Milford, New Hampshire, 1859. The 1860 census, so this is the, this is the year right before the Civil War starts. The 1860 census, the U.S. population is 31.4 million people. There are 4.4 million uh, African-Americans. We were 14.1% of the U.S. population. This included 488,000 free African-Americans, okay? So a lot of times we will talk about free African-Americans uh, during slavery, but we won't talk about the numbers, all right? So you're dealing with approximately 488,000 free African-Americans in 1860. We know that the first census was taken in 1790. The census was created by the U.S. Constitution, okay? And the census is taken every 10 years. All right, now, uh, November uh, 6, 1860, okay? And I'm going to post the information here. You can register for the bundle pack. If you registered for this class and you want to uh, register also for the Saturday class, you can email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com or 
email me through the website, theafterhistorynetwork.com. The we'll get you into the Saturday class at a discount, okay? Um, November 6, 1860, this is going to change the course of history. Abraham Lincoln is elected president. Now, the Republican Party is uh, founded uh, in 1854 as a backlash to the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. Uh, Lincoln's uh, vice, Lincoln's running mate was um, uh, Andrew Johnson, Andrew Johnson from Tennessee, who was a Democrat, and, a, and he was a Democrat from Tennessee and a slave owner. And he's he he brought on uh, the, the the Republicans brought on uh, Johnson uh, as Lincoln's running mate to balance the ticket, and they wanted to. Uh, they, they, they wanted to address the fears of the Southern states, the Southern slaveholding states that Lincoln was going to free the slaves. Okay. Because they want to keep the union together. And once again, the civil war was not fought to free the slaves. So Lincoln becomes uh, president elect November 6, um, 1860. And about six weeks later on December 20th, 1860, South Carolina, becomes the first state to secede from the union, okay? And they're gonna be followed by a number of uh, other uh, states and then we, we're gonna see the uh, Civil War is gonna break out uh, April 12, 1861. And where is my stuff on the, the Bleeding Kansas? I just had it, hold on just a second here. I got a ton of information. This is, this class, there are two binders of, uh, information that I teach from. Let me find Bleeding Kansas. That's man. Okay, I'll find it. That's Manifest Destiny. That's uh, we also talk about the Mexican-American War in this class. This is extremely important to understand. We already dealt with that Mexican-American War. I'm looking for. All right, I'll find it. Okay, so. Um, 1861, Congress passes the first confiscation act which prevents uh confederate slave owners from re-enslaving runaways it prevents confederate slave owners from re-enslaving runaways okay the confederate uh the uh, the, the um uh, first confiscation act may 2nd african-american men in new orleans organized the first louisiana native guard of the confederate army the first Louisiana Native Guard of the Confederate Army. In doing so, they create the first and only military unit of black officers and enlisted men to pledge to fight for Southern independence, okay? We know that um, basically Louisiana was the state that had the most number of um, black slave owners also, okay, which is, part of history uh, a lot of people don't want to talk about for some reason um, uh, this history is complicated it ain't as simple as it you make it sound and YouTube videos and stuff like that I'm trying to tell you this um, yes there were black slave owners now the dr. Carter G Woodson did research it was about in the 1840s 1850s and he found that uh, about half of 
the slave, about half of the black slave owners only owned one slave. It's probably a family member because there are cases of African-Americans in the South buying family members out of slavery. There are cases of African-Americans who were slaves marrying free African-Americans. Harriet Tubman was one of them when she married her husband, John Tubman. She was a slave in Maryland. He was free. This is a very nuanced history. It's not as cut and dry as people try to make it. This is why, um, this is why this book here, Before the Mayflower, is so important. It's a beat up copy. I gotta get a new copy of Before the Mayflower. Beat up by Lerone Bennett Jr. Because Chapter Two lays out a lot of the history of slavery evolving in this country because. August 20th, 1619, when that white lion pirate ship comes into uh, Virginia, Point Comfort in Virginia, right? Codified slave laws don't exist in any of the 13 colonies. I know people like this, you know, they like to start slavery in 1619 and say, oh, you know, they were oppressing us since we got here and stuff like that. Well, <laughs> pump your brakes back up, slow down. First of all, when we deal with Dr. David M. Hotep's book, the first Americans were Africans documented evidence. We know that African people, the Khoisan, this is not a Khoisan man, He's, this, is, this is a brother who was in Brazil. We know the Khoisan who have the oldest DNA on the planet. We know they were, they, they're the ancestors that I knew in the Trois, they go all around the world. We know they were here in the land that we call the United States of America in the, in the uh, South Carolina, Georgia area, going back at least 51,700 years ago. This is before Native Americans even come into existence. I did a lot with this in uh, uh, my first class, the Saturday class, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So we have to have a greater understanding of history beyond 1619, okay? This, this was our land stolen from us. One of the names of this land that Native Americans used was Turtle Island. This was our land stolen from us, okay? If we understand, I was interviewed by uh, Angela Matthews on Urban Interests, um, um, the Urban Information Network here in Detroit. She interviewed me for Juneteenth. And she was asking me one of the most important things, the history, things like this that I've come across, et cetera. And I said that if African people, African-Americans, understood that this was our land stolen from us and we did not first come to this land conquered and shackled in chains by Europeans. Yes, the transatlantic slave trade happened, but we were here for tens of thousands of years before the transatlantic slave trade happened. If we understood that and that this was our land stolen from us, we would have a fundamental shift in the consciousness, in the uh, uh, ideas, in the uh, self-esteem of African-Americans. We would have a fundamental shift in this. If, um, so Dr. David M. Hotep's book, First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence, page 14, deals with a, uh, a discovery in Allendale County, South Carolina in 2004 by Dr. Albert Goodyear, who's an archeologist at the University of South Carolina. They found 13 different types of evidence fairly documenting an African presence in this country 
going back at least 51,700 years ago. This is before Native Americans come into existence. Native Americans are the offspring uh, of the intermixing of Africans who were already here, like the Khoisan, and Asians who come to this land around 3000 BC. The Asians crossed the Bering Straits and, and they intermix their offspring or who we call Native Americans. Uh, when you look at old pictures, old photographs of Native Americans, and I got one of my uh, Native American books around here somewhere. This is, uh, well, oh, this book right here. This is the one I want. This book right here. Okay, when you look at old black and white photographs of Native Americans, these normally were not a very light-skinned people. These were normally a darker skin people, oftentimes high cheekbones, things like this, chronology of Native Americans, the ultimate guide to North America's indigenous peoples, okay? You look at old black and white photographs, all right? And then also you look at, you know, the description of some of them, things like that. Um, and then we know Captain John Smith in, um, uh, 1607 in Virginia, Captain John Smith talked about being uh, captured by a group of black Indians. All right. Dr. David M. Hotep deals with this in uh, the first Americans were Africans documented evidence. All right. So we're dealing with a much new, a much more nuanced history than we have been told or has been depicted in roots and things like this. All right. So they found artifacts, architecture, camp, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, footprints in lava, genetic M174D halfway groups dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, paintings, skulls, skeleton structures and tools. They found 13 different types of evidence fairly documenting an African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago. Here's a, um, a picture of Dr. Albert Goodyear, archaeologist at the University of South Carolina. This is an article from almost 20 years ago, November 18th, 2004, from ScienceDaily.com, called New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. You can go read that article yourself, and this deals with his, his discovery. And this is a summary of the discovery. This is a summary of the discovery of the article from ScienceDaily.com. This is ScienceDaily.com summary, not my summary. Radiocarbon tests of carbonized plant remains where artifacts were unearthed last May along the Savannah River in Allendale County by University of South Carolina archaeologist Dr. Albert Goodyear indicate that the sediments containing these artifacts are at least, are at least 50,000 years old, meaning that humans inhabited North America long before the last ice age. Now, these are Europeans. These are white people telling us that humans inhabited North America long before the last ice age. Who were these humans? They weren't Europeans. Native Americans didn't exist 50,000 years ago. Who, who were these Europeans? These were, these were African people. These were the Khoisan. Now, the Khois, uh, now an October 2012 gen, uh, genetic study published in Science Magazine found that the Khoisan in Southern Africa are the oldest ethnic group of modern humans with their ancestral line originating about 100,000 years ago. The Khoisan, formerly called by the derogatory term Bushmen, are genetically unique and no other 
currently known population had separated so early from our common modern human ancestor, according to the report. Now, here, here is a picture of two Khoisan women, two African sisters. The Khoisan live in mainly the Khoisan live mainly in southern Africa, in territories spanning Botswana, Namibia, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. They are largely divided into two groups: hunters and gatherers, who are known as the Sans people (S-A-N-S), and the keepers of livestock, who are known as the Khoikhoi people. The Khoisan languages include the distinctive click click sounds that are not found in the languages of their neighbors, okay? If you read the article from um, atlantablackstar.com, five ethnic groups that prove the first humans were black, they talk about the Khoisan, they have this information there, okay? All right, now, that's just, just, just a little background information. So I'm not saying that the transatlantic slave trade did not happen. Yes, it did happen. I'm saying African people were here for thousands of years before the transatlantic slave trade happened. So we can't start our studying our history here in this country in 1619. We can't start studying our history in this country here in 1526 when the Spanish were bringing Africans into um, the into South Carolina in 1526. And those Africans, there's going to be an uprising and they overthrow their oppressors after about three weeks or so when they go, um, they run away and go live with Native Americans. OK, so this is a very this is a very nuanced history. All right. Now. Let's go. How do you all like this type of information? Okay, let me know. Who still needs to register for this 10-week online class that I teach? We're doing a free class today. This is class number six. As soon as you register, you can watch the uh, previous classes. We have them all archived. We normally do the class Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm doing it today because I'm going to be tied up um, Sunday. And uh, I was tied up with um, Juneteenth and things like that. And uh, uh, Fourth of July holiday, uh, the, the um, radio station was shut down, so I didn't do my show. It was about a week. My laptop was in the in the repair shop, so I was out without my laptop. So we're teaching the class today. All right, I want to go back to this timeline of history very quickly here. We left off in eighteen. We left off in eighteen sixty one. Okay. Um, on uh, so 1861 on May 2nd 1861 black uh, black men in New Orleans organized the first Louisiana Native Guard okay um, I know what I was going to show you there's this article here that I posted a few days ago from um uh, face-to-faceafrica.com face-to-faceafrica.com that's one of the news sources that i uh, monitor on a daily basis and we post articles from face-to-faceafrica.com it dealt with a black slave owner, black slave owner in louisiana dealt with a black slave owner in louisiana one of the richest men in all of the slavery even richer than his white neighbors this is why this history is so nuanced so 
you know, probably about half of the black, black slave owners, they were, they bought family members out of slavery. Then you had others, treacherous, you know, who, who we call traitors, things like this. But still, the majority of slave owners in this country were not African-Americans. The majority of slave owners were going to be white people. You still, you had some Native American nations that owned African slaves, um, the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians uh, were the, the biggest Native American slave owners. All 566 federally, federally recognized tribal uh, nations did not own African slaves, but the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians were known for this. Okay, uh, okay, I, I just want to make sure I'm still coming through uh, okay on the uh, broadcast. I uh, want to make sure I'm coming through. All right, y'all can hear me okay. This article right here, let me close some of these ads out. This is what I was talking about. This is from July 5th, 2022 from facetofaceafrica.com. This black man was one of the richest men in all of the South during slavery, even richer than his white neighbors, even richer than his white neighbors. Now, just because there were black slave owners does not mean that African-Americans should not get reparations to repair the damage of slavery. Okay, so don't even try to use that. That's ridiculous. And they were operating based upon laws that white people set up. Um, let me zoom in on this here. So his name was Ant, um, Antoine du uh, Duplessis. Okay. In one of his biographies, he was described as a true Southern gentleman, uh, smart, well-dressed and debonair, a black slave owner who became a Republican politician. Antoine Dublisset saved Louisiana from bankruptcy. Antoine Dublisset saved Louisiana from bankruptcy. Let's increase the font uh, size here. We zoom in. He was the only black in the South to hold the office of state treasurer for more than one term. Antoine Dublisset was one of only two, what was was also one of only two to serve as state treasurer during Southern Reconstruction. Before making history in Louisiana politics, Antoine Dublisset was among some of the biggest black slave owners who are rarely discussed today but changed the course of American history. In Louisiana, he was a sugar planter with hundreds of slaves, some of whom he inherited from his father. That turned him into the wealthiest black slave owner in the 1860s. And, and the um, Louisiana, because of the intermixing, the biracial people, because of the intermixing between Africans and Europeans, even when Louisiana was French territory, okay, Louisiana becomes part of the Union because of the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. The U.S. gets 828,000 square miles of land for less than three cents an acre, for less than three cents an acre from France in the Louisiana Purchase. The U.S. pays about $15 million for, for that land, okay? So you had a lot of biracial people in Louisiana, even when you look at um, Homer Plessy. Okay, Homer Plessy, who was the plaintiff in Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896 U.S. Supreme Court case. Homer Plessy was from Louisiana. 
Homer Plessy could pass for white. He described himself as seven-eighths European and one-eighth African. When he was on the, the, uh, the streetcar, on the train um, in Louisiana, the, the conductor asked him, he was sitting in the white section. He refused to go to the colored section. The conductor asked him if he was colored, okay, or if he was white, what, one of them. He asked him if he was colored. And, you know, he said, you know, he, he was colored. He wasn't white. If he had just said he was white, he could have passed for white. He was seven-eighths European, and you're there in Louisiana with all that intermixing. So this is a very nuanced history. So widely regarded as one of the richest men in all of the South, even richer than his white neighbors, Antoine Dublisset was born a free man to free parents in 1810 and inherited a large sugar cane plantation. So it's sugar, they say sugar plantation is sugar cane. Sugar comes from sugar cane and sugar. And, and, and one of the reasons why slavery is so big in the South is because the, the because of the climate of the South is hotter. It's more conducive to growing a lot of a lot of crops like sugar cane. OK, Dublisset was uh, uh, born a free man to free parents in 1810 and inherited a large sugar, sugar cane plantation called Cedar Grove from his father. Antoine Dublis, who was Antoine Dublisset Sr., okay? Antoine Dublisset Jr. was given a part of his grandfather's name, but he used his father's name because he was the eldest son. Antoine Dublisset's father was a successful free man of color who owned around 460 acres of land and 70 slaves, okay? So his father was a slave owner also, and he inherited some of the slaves from his father. Not surprisingly, his son became successful too. After Antoine Dublisset had inherited his father's estate, following his father's death in 1828, he added 30 more African slaves to the 70 he inherited from his father as the plantation group. By 1860, so we just looked at the census of 1860, right? And you had about uh, 488,000 free African Americans, and you had about... Uh, close to 4 million uh, enslaved African-Americans, okay? We just looked at the census of 1860. By 1860, he owned over 100 African slaves and had one of the largest sugarcane plantations in Louisiana. Records say his plantation was worth $264,000 in, in 1860, $264,000 in 1860 while the average income of his neighbors in the South was only around $3,978 in a year. And his, his, his uh, net worth, his plantation, I should say, was worth $264,000 in 1860. Now, he, he, he married a wealthy African-American woman called Claire Pollard in the mid-1830s. She also owned her own plantation with 44 slaves, because you have black women, there's some cases of black women who own slaves as well. Okay, now once again, African Americans only owned about like 1830s, 40s, 50s. They owned maybe about 1% of the slaves in the country. The other, then you had Native Americans that owned some. So close to 98, 99%, plus 98%. Of the slaves in the country still owned by white people. Okay. 
And for African-Americans, about half of, for African-American slave owners, about half of the slaves, about half of the African-American slave owners own one slave. That's coming from the research from Dr. Carter G. Woodson, because they, they were buying family members out of slavery. They may have, they may have lived in the South, okay, but they bought family members out of slavery. Now, um, Antoine Dublisset Jr. managed both plantations, his and his wife, wife's plantation, and that helped to grow his wealth in the 1860s, becoming Louisiana's wealthiest slaveholder, okay, in the, eight, in the 1860s, Louisiana's wealthiest slaveholder. At the time, at the time his wife died, uh, he was Louisiana's wealthiest slaveholder. Later, the Civil War destroyed much of the South and the plantation industry compelling Antoine Dublisset to enter into politics, all right? Now, uh, okay, he was elected state treasurer of Louisiana, 1868, re-elected 1870, 1874. Uh, Battle of Liberty, to, 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 League against the White League, oh. Okay, right here. Antoine Dublisset had to overcome certain hurdles to make it in politics. According to one account, Antoine Dublisset Jr. was, or the second, was the only office holder who survived the Battle of Liberty Place in September 1874. Uh, now, there's another riot that we talk about in the class during Reconstruction Era, the Vicksburg Massacre of 1874. That's in Vicksburg, Mississippi. That dealt with politics. A lot of these riots and rebellions that we're going to see involve politics. Opelousa Massacre, 1868, Clinton, Mississippi, Massacre, 1875, Yafala Massacre, uh, 1874, Yafala, uh, Alabama, uh, uh, Vicksburg Massacre, 1874. All that's dealing with, all that's dealing with uh, politics, political parties, and trying to intimidate African-Americans to keep us from voting, okay? All that surrounding that is surrounding politics. Battle of Liberty Place in September 1874. And it, it, this was an attempted insurrection, an attempted insurrection, an attempted insurrection and coup d'etat by the present city white league against the Reconstruction era Louisiana Republican state government, an attempted insurrection in the United States, an attempted insurrection in the United States in 1874. Their descendants had an attempted insurrection of the United States government January 6, 2021, incited by Benedict Donald, the traitor in chief. An attempted insurrection and coup d'etat by the Crescent City White League against the Reconstruction era Louisiana Republican state government. And it's going to be the white league that have the uh, they're involved in the uh, Yafala uh, riot of 1874 in Alabama. That's the way it wasn't just the Ku Klux Klan. It's the white league. It's the red shirts. It's the Klan. It's other domestic terrorist organizations. Today, they're the Proud Boys. Today, they're the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, things like this, who are a paramilitary arm either officially or ostensibly, unofficially, of the Republican Party, you had para, a paramilitary arm of the, the white nationalist, white supremacist Democratic Party back during Reconstruction. 
and, and the white league was part of that. The Ku Klux Klan was part of that. Today is flipped, and it's the Republican Party that has that paramilitary white nationalist, white, white nationalist, white supremacist organizations. And this is what the January 6th committee hearings are exposing. This is why you got to understand this history. Because this history is repeating itself. If it ain't repeating, it's definitely rhyming. Everybody all right? How, how y'all like this type of information? Everybody okay? Y'all learning anything? Let's continue. So Antoine Dublisset, uh the second, the son, junior, also had to overcome impeachment in 1876. By the following year, he had retired from politics. At the time of his death, on December 18, 1887, he was one of the South richest men. He had 12 children in all, nine from his first wife and three from his second wife. His interesting history, his interesting story as, a, as an African-American who acquired wealth during slavery as a black slave owner should always be told. This history should always be told. Most slave owners were thought to be mostly wealthy, white individuals, but historical accounts have shown that African slaves were also largely owned, were also largely owned by black people or people of color. In 1830, 3,775 freed former slaves owned 12,100 slaves, writes historian uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson. So 1830, yeah, get about 3,775 uh, slave owners, black slave owners who owned 12,100 slaves, okay? And about half of the slaves they owned were, were, were family members who, who they were buying out of slavery. There's an article from uh, Dr. Henry Lewis, Skip the Truth Gates. And that's what one of my teachers, Dr. Uh, Leonard Jeffries calls him, because oftentimes Dr. Gates skips over the truth. Gates does do some good research. I've read two of his books. He does do some good research. Uh, but he has a, a very, very important article, and I've read a number of articles, dozens of articles he used to write for the for the root.com. Um, it was an article that he wrote for the root called the, the Black People Own Slaves. This is from March 4th, 2013. Now, once again, this does not mean that we are not owed reparations. This means that our history is much more nuanced and is much deeper than we think. The Black People Own Slaves, March 4th, 2013. So this is just a sample of the type of information we deal with in this class. This is class, this is class number six of from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865, 1968. Normally we do this at our online class. It's not on Facebook or YouTube, but but today's class, since it's during the week, normally I do this on Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., but I said, you know, we'll just make this a free class. We'll do this on Facebook and YouTube and talk with some people today. Uh, but he, he references Dr. Carter G. Woodson. You can read the full article. I don't have time to go through all of it. The answer to these questions are complex, and historians have been arguing from some time over whether free blacks purchase family members as slaves in order to protect them, motivated on the one hand by benevolence and, and philanthropy as Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who co-founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, uh, September 9th, 1915, 
And we know in 1926, he creates Negro History Week, which in 1976 becomes Black History Month, right? That, that Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Uh, as historian Dr. Carter G. Woodson put it, or whether, on the other hand, they purchase other Black people, quote, as an, as an act of exploitation, end quote, primarily to exploit their free labor uh, for profit, just as white slave owners did. The evidence shows that, unfortunately, both things are true. The evidence shows that, unfortunately, both things are true, which is why, and, as, and I'm a historian, this is why I explain to people, our history is not as cut and dry or as black and white, so to speak, as oftentimes people think it is. The great African-American historian John Hope, John Hope Franklin, who was from Tulsa, Oklahoma, states this clearly. The majority of the Negro owners of slaves had some personal interest in their property. The majority of the Negro owners of slaves had some personal interest in their property. But he admits there were instances, however, in which free Negroes had a real economic interest in the institution of slavery and held African slaves in order to improve their economic status, end quote. In a fascinating essay reviewing this controversy, R. Halliburton shows that free black people have owned slaves in each of the 13 original states and later in every uh, state that, in, that countenance, countenance slavery. At least since Anthony Johnson and his wife Mary went to court in Virginia in 1654 uh, to obtain the services of their indentured servant, a black man named John Castor for life. It was 1854, uh, Anthony Johnson. And when you read uh, uh, the, the chapter two, before the May file about Lerone Bennett Jr., you, you see that by the time Anthony Johnson dies, the, the laws have been rewritten in uh, Virginia, in the colony of Virginia, laws have been rewritten and his, his, um, uh, he, by the time he dies, his family's gonna lose their land and all that stuff, okay? The, the laws have been rewritten. And for a time, free black people could even own the services of white indentured servants in Virginia as well. That's absolutely correct. And in, 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 um, Lerone Bennett Jr. deals with this in chapter two, because you had uh, uh, black slave owners who owned black slaves and white indigenous servants also. Free African-Americans owned slaves in Boston by 1724 and in Connecticut by 1783. By 1790, 48 black people in Maryland owned 43 slaves. Okay, by 1790, 48 black people in Maryland owned 143 slaves. One particularly notorious black Maryland farm, uh, farmer named uh, Nat Butler regularly purchased and sold Negroes for the southern trade, R. Halliburton wrote. Now, uh, perhaps the most insidious or desperate attempt to defend the right of black people to own slaves was the statement made on the eve of the Civil War by a group of free, by, by, by a group of free people of color in New Orleans, which is in Louisiana, which goes back to my point of what I was talking about, because the largest number of black slave owners in the country were in Louisiana, like Antoine Dublisset Jr. The eve of the Civil War by a group of free people of color in New Orleans offering their services to the Confederacy, in part because they were fearful for their own enslavement. 
they were fearful for their own enslavement. Quote, the free, the free people, the, sorry, the free colored people, native of Louisiana, own slaves, and they are dearly attached to their native land, and they are ready to shed uh, their blood for defense for, uh, for her defense and they are ready to shed their blood for her defense they have no sympathy for abolitionism no love for the north but they have plenty for louisiana they will fight for her in 1861 civil war as they fought to defend new orleans from the british in 1814 1815 during the war of 1812 you got to go back and study the history of the War of 1812. We deal with that some. Yeah, we talk about that a little bit in, in this class, the War of 1812, okay? Because we start this class out in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution. So you got to go and, and study the War of 1812. And there were 6,000 African Americans who were slaves who, who ran away from the, uh, they ran away from the, from the, from the, the, the states to the British side to fight for the British because the British said, if you come fight for us, then we'll free you after the war of 1812 is over with war of 1812, uh, 1812 to uh, by 1814. Okay. They said, if you come fight for us, we'll free you after the war is over with. And they're going to take some of them. They go into uh, some of the freed Africans, they go into Nova Scotia, Canada. They go into Nova Scotia because that was British territory, Nova Scotia. All right. And uh, at, at the end of the war of 1812, the U.S. demanded that uh, Great Britain return to the U.S. those 6,000 runaway African slaves. And and Great Britain said they're not going to return them because, you, you know, you know it's during the war of 1812. It's September uh, 1813 that uh, 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 a white slave owner named Francis Scott Key witnesses the attack, the British attack on Fort McHenry in the Baltimore area. And he writes a poem about this attack, which, become known, which becomes known as the Star Spangled Banner. Years later, it's originally called Defense of Fort McHenry. It becomes known as the Star Spangled Banner. That was written by a white supremacist slave owner named Francis Scott Key. So a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, it's the third stanza. No refuge for the hireling or the slave. That's the problem with the Star Spangled Banner. No, the entire song is a white supremacist song. You have to understand the history behind the Star Spangled Banner and who wrote it. The entire song is problematic. It ain't just the third stanza. Okay, let's continue. Now, uh, okay, so read the rest of this article here. Uh, yeah, read the rest of this article here from the, the, the root.com. I'm not a big fan of the root, but they do have some good articles here and there. Did black people own slaves? March 4th, 2013, with Dr. Henry Lewis Gates Jr. So this is a very nuanced history, okay? All right, now, let's continue. I want to go back to this one here. Oh, and read this article here 
on Antoine Dublisset, uh the second or junior. This black man was one of the richest men in all of the South during slavery, even richer than his white neighbors. All right, if you like this type of information, we're going to continue getting, we're going to get into the Civil War here in uh, just a second. Uh, if you like this type of information, you can uh, register for this uh, 10-week online uh, history class from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. And we have the information on the homepage of our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have a bundle pack where you can register for both classes for only $100. It's a $360 value. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at uh, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com or through the website and you get a 50% discount. Um, so this class is uh, on sale, $60, regularly $130. We ha and we have a bundle pack where you get both classes, including my Saturday class, which is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. You get both classes for $100. So we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. Uh, even a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire class. Uh, we'll post the link here again. And uh, this is class number six of From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. This is class number six that we're doing today. Uh, we're going to do more than 10 sessions um, this time around. We'll be teaching this class because a couple of the first sessions I had to cut short because my allergy, I'm allergic to pollen. My allergy really bothered me. This has been a very, very bad pollen uh, allergy season. So we're going to do uh, probably about 12 sessions uh, this time around. Okay. If you want to do, if you want to register for just this class is $60, both classes is discounted to $100 for a limited time only. That's a $360 value. We have some bonus archived content there for you. You're going to get some extra uh, lectures from me that are going to be bonus in digital format. Okay, so 1861, February, by February 1861, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas also secede from the Union following uh, South Carolina. They form what's known as the Confederate States of America, the CSA, the Confederate States of America, March 4th, 1861, okay? Go back to this here. All right. So they formed the Confederate States of America um, in uh, March 4th, 1861. Now, after the firing on Fort Sumter near Charleston, South Carolina, April 12, 1861, this is going to start the Civil War, the attack on Fort Sumter. Uh, Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina are going to join the Confederate States of America as well. 1861, the Civil War, approximately 200,000 African Americans, including Harriet Tubman, mostly are newly escaped freed slaves, served in the Union Armed Forces, and over 20,000 are killed in combat. All right. Um, 1862, the Port Royal, South Carolina Reconstruction Experiment begins in March 1862. 
April 16th, 1862, Congress abolishes slavery in the District of Columbia, and then they're going to pay reparations to uh, those uh, slave owners there in um, in D.C., okay? The uh, Compensated Emancipation Act of 1862, signed into law by uh, President Abraham Lincoln. All right, so let's look at this here. I want to look at this piece here from... Uh, Let's see. Let's go to the let's go to the PowerPoint presentation quickly. And then I want to look at this piece here on the Civil War from uh, History.com, which is the official website of the History Channel. Okay, Kansas-Nebraska Act, Bleeding Kansas, which leads to the formation uh, of the Republican Party, which leads to the formation of the Republican Party. Uh, let's look at this here. Bleeding Kansas. Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 passed over fierce opposition. It was passed over fierce opposition in Congress and signed into law in 1854. The Kansas-Nebraska Act created the territories of Kansas and the territory of Nebraska and gave each the right to decide whether or not to permit slavery uh, when it joined the union. This is called popular sovereignty, popular sovereignty. Uh, it left it left up to them to determine whether or not, uh, it left up to the people living in those territories whether or not they would have slavery as opposed to it being dictated to them by the federal government. And we know that um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that uh, the Missouri Compromise of 1820 was illegal. It violated uh, the, the Fifth Amendment due process. It violated the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And it stated that it was illegal for the federal government to dictate to those people living in, in territories whether or not they could have slavery. All right. So that was part of the Dred Scott decision of 18 uh, March 6, 1857, that we've already talked about. So, um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act created the territories of Kansas and Nebraska and gave each the right to decide whether or not to permit slavery when it joined the Union. Um, uh, Douglas um, believed that popular sovereignty, Stephen Douglas, believed that popular sovereignty, as uh, this idea was known, would resolve the ongoing sectional uh, debate between North and South over slavery's extension into uh, the territories, okay, over slavery's extension into the territories, all right? Okay, so this is, uh, this, is a, <coughs> this is an excerpt of the article, Bleeding Kansas from History.com. So Bleeding Kansas is going to be from 1855 to about 1859, and it's going to be armed conflict between pro-slavery and anti-slavery groups, okay? Um, uh, Stephen Douglas was a uh, senator of, from Illinois, okay? He's a, senator, uh, he's a senator from Illinois. So that's not Frederick Douglas, that's Stephen Douglas. Uh, manifest destiny, if you've heard that term manifest destiny, that's going to be coined by John L. O'Sullivan um, in 18... Uh, 18 45, the year before 
the Mexican-American War. Manifest destiny in U.S. history, the supposed inevitability of the continued territorial expansion of the boundaries of the United States westward to the Pacific and beyond. Before the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, the idea of manifest destiny was used to validate continental acquisitions in the Oregon country, Texas, New Mexico, and California. The uh, purchase of Alaska after the Civil War, which ends in eight, with all practical purposes, ends April 1865, that as we get deeper into the class, we're going to find out that the Civil War does not officially come to an end until August 1866, because April 9th, 1865, even though General Robert E. Lee surrenders to uh, General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, General Lee's Confederate Army was the largest Confederate Army, but his army was not the only Confederate Army. There's General uh, Joseph E. Johnson's Army of Tennessee. There's uh, uh, that traitor, uh, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. There's his Confederate Army. So there are smaller Confederate armies and the terms of surrender have to be negotiated with each one of those Confederate armies. So it's, it's um, the Civil War continues in a smaller, to a smaller extent, and comes to an end in August of 1866. Uh, the purchase of Alaska after the Civil War, 1865, briefly revived the concept of Manifest Destiny, but it mostly but it most evidently became a renewed force in U.S. foreign policy in the 1890s when the, when the country went to war with Spain and annexed Hawaii and laid uh, plans for the uh, Ismain Canal across Central America. So we know 1898, the Spanish-American War, right, that the U.S. gets involved in is the war between Cuba and Spain, and Cuba's fighting for their independence. And remember that Cuba was one of those island nations that Christopher Columbus conquers on behalf of Spain during his four voyages, okay? So we see how all this history comes together and then Cuba's gonna fight against Spain in 1898 for their independence. And as I've talked about before, and as I deal with in these classes, uh, Cuba, Haiti, Puerto Rico, Honduras, uh, Honduras, Panama, uh, the Bahamas, things like this, they still have not recovered from what happened to them over 500 years ago and the horror that was inflicted upon them by Columbus and Spain. Columbus on behalf of the Spanish crown and being colonized. They, they, they have never recovered from that. Okay, so that's dealing with manifest destiny. Then the U.S. Civil War. So the Civil War in the United States began in 1861 after decades of simmering tensions between northern and southern states over slavery, over slavery, states' rights, and westward expansion. Over slavery, states' rights, and westward expansion. The election of Abraham Lincoln, November 6, 1860, caused seven southern states to secede from the Union and formed the Confederate States of America. Four more states soon joined them. The war between the states as the, as the Civil War was also known ended in Confederate surrender in 1865. 
the conflict was the costliest and deadliest war ever fought on American soil, with some 620,000 of the 2.4 million soldiers killed. There was 620,000 approximately uh, soldiers killed during the U.S. Civil War. Millions more injured and much of the South left in ruin. Okay, um, so let's look at this uh, piece here from history.com, official website of the History Channel. Uh, this article is uh, the Civil War. Let's go to, let's pull this up here. All right. Let's look at this piece here from uh, history.com. And also, okay, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, later. That deals with reconstruction. Where is it? Okay, uh, this piece here, Civil War from uh, history.com. Let's bring up this article. All right. And I'm going to post a link here. You can register for this full 10 week online class. Uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Normally we do this on Sundays, but I'm doing it today because uh, uh, I'll be tied up Sunday. I'll be at an event. And so I said, we'll, we'll make uh, this is class number six. I said, we'll make this class free. We're actually going to do 12 sessions uh, this time around teaching this class. So as soon as you register for the full course, you can go back and watch the previous uh, classes that we've done. They're archived. And even a year from now, two years from now, you'll still have access to the full class. Okay, causes of the Civil War. Um, in the mid-19th century, while the United States was experiencing an era of tremendous growth, a fundamental uh, economic difference existed between the country's northern and southern regions. A fundamental economic difference existed between the country's northern and southern regions. In the north, manufacturing and industry was well established and agriculture was mostly limited to small-scale farms, while the south's economy was based on a system of large-scale farming, okay? Take a look at this here. I'll be right back. Read that. I'll be right back. Just a minute.
All right. Here we go. Okay, let's continue. So in the North, manufacturing and industry was well established and agriculture was mostly uh, limited to small scale farms. Agriculture was mostly limited to small scale farms while the South's economy was based on a system of large scale uh, farming that depended on the labor of black enslaved people to grow certain crops, especially cotton and tobacco. Now, growing abolitionist sentiment, growing abolitionist sentiment in the North after the 1830s and Northern opposition to slavery's extension uh, into the new Western territories led many Southerners to fear that the existence of slavery in America and thus the backbone of their economy was in danger. So you have a growing abolitionist movement as you have greater expansion of slavery in Western territories, okay? Grow, growing abolitionist sentiment in the North after the 1830s. And we know that the Underground Railroad is gonna start right around 1830, 1831. And Northern opposition to slavery's extension into new Western territories led many Southerners to fear that the existence of slavery in America and thus the backbone of their economy was in danger. In 1854, the U.S. Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which we just talked about, which essentially opened all new territories to slavery by asserting the rule of popular sovereignty, which I just mentioned a few minutes ago, popular sovereignty over congressional edict, okay? Now, pro and, and anti-slavery forces struggled violently in what's known as Bleeding Kansas. The Bleeding Kansas uh, armed conflict, while opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act in the North led to the formation of the Republican Party in 1854. A new political entity based on the principle of opposing slavery's extension into Western territories, after, uh, into Western territories, okay? So the Republican Party is gonna be formed. And at that time you have the Whig Party, W-H-I-G, which we've talked about early in the class. The Whig Party is dying out, all right? Uh, after the Supreme Court's ruling in the Dred Scott case, in their decision, March 6, 1857, confirmed the legality of slavery in the territories, the abolitionist John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry, the abolitionist John Brown's raid at uh, Harper's Ferry uh, in Virginia in 1859, convinced more and more Southerners that their Northern neighbors were bent on the destruction of the peculiar institution known as slavery. 
the peculiar institution that sustained them. So we're going to see these different events that uh, lead up to the Civil War taking place. Abraham Lincoln's election in November 1860 was the final straw. And within three months, seven southern states, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, has seceded from the Union. Even as Lincoln took office in March of 1861, because the Confederate States of America is formed March 4th, 1861, even as he took office March of 1861 in his inaugural address, Confederate forces threatened uh, the Confederate forces threatened the federal hailed uh, Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina on April 12th. 1861 after Lincoln ordered a fleet to resupply Sumter uh, Confederate artillery fired the first shots of the Civil War now um, Fort Sumter's commander Major Robert Anderson surrendered after less than two days of bombardment leaving the fort in the hands of Confederate forces under Pierre GT Beauregard PGT Beauregard uh, Four more southern states, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee, are going to join the Union. Border slave states like Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware did not secede from the Union, but there was much Confederate sympathy among the, among the citizens. So they stay loyal to the Union. They're allowed to keep their slaves. And so remember when the uh, Emancipation Proclamation takes place, January 1st, 1863, Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, and Delaware are exempt. These were slaveholding states that stayed loyal to the Union. They were allowed to keep their slaves, all right? And these states uh, had, uh, there, was, there were a lot of Confederate sympathizers among the citizens of those border states also. Now, though on the surface, the Civil War may have may have seen a lopsided conflict. Though on the surface, the Civil War may have seen a lopsided conflict with the 23 states of the Union enjoying an enormous advantage in population, manufacturing, including arms production, uh, weapons, arms production and railroad construction. The Confederates had a strong military tradition along with some of the best soldiers and commanders in the nation. Now, they also had a cause that they believed in, preserving their long-held traditions and institutions, chief among these being slavery. And when you read the statements of secession of these, state, uh, of these uh, uh, states that secede to the Union, when you read their statements of secession, like Texas and Mississippi, things like that, they talk about how slavery was central to their way of life and, and, and how their wealth was tied up in slavery and, and how slavery was so important to uh, uh, their way of life. Now, in the in the first uh, in the in the first battle of Bull Run, the first battle of Bull Run known in the South as First 
Manassas on July 21st, 1861, 35,000 Confederate soldiers under the command of Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson forced a great number of Union forces or Federals to retreat towards Washington, D.C., dashing any hopes of a quick uh, Union victory and leading uh, President Abraham Lincoln to call for 500,000 more recruits, call for 500,000 more recruits. In fact, both sides initial call for troops had been to had to be widened after it became clear that the war would not be a limited or short conflict now if we look at 1862 in virginia george uh and here's a uh, okay george b mcclellan who replaced the aging general winfield scott as supreme commander of the Union Army after the first uh, uh, after the first months of the Civil War, was beloved by his troops, but his reluctance to advance frustrated President Abraham Lincoln. In the spring of 1862, uh, uh, George B. McClellan, uh, General George B. McClellan, finally led his army of the Potomac up the peninsula between York and, and James River, between the York and James Rivers, capturing Yorktown on May 4th, 1862. The combined forces of General Robert E. Lee and uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson successfully drove George, uh, General George B. McClellan's army in the Seven Days battle Battles, which was June 25th through July 1st, 1862. And a cautious uh, General McClellan called for yet uh, more reinforcements in order to move against Richmond, Virginia. Now, President Lincoln refused and instead withdrew the Army of the Potomac to Washington, D.C. By mid-1862, uh, General George B. McClellan had been replaced as Union General in Chief by Henry W. Halleck, H-A-L-L-E-C-K, though he remained in command of the Army of the Potomac. Now, General Robert E. Lee then moved his troops northward and split his men, sending um, Thomas Stonewall Jackson to meet Pope's forces near Manassas, while uh, Lee, while General Lee himself moved separately with the second half of the army. On August 29, 1862, Union troops led by John Pope struck um, Thomas Stonewall Jackson's forces in the Second Battle of Bull Run, known as, also known as Second Manassas. The next day, General Lee hit the Federal left flank with a massive assault, driving uh, John Pope's men back towards Washington. On the heels of his victory at Manassas, General Lee began the first Confederate invasion of the North. The, he began the first Confederate invasion of the North. Now, despite contradictory orders from President Abraham Lincoln, um, Halleck and uh, General McClellan 
was able to reorganize his army and strike at General Lee on September 14th in Maryland, 1862, driving the Confederates back to a defensive position along Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg. On September 17th, 1862, the Army of the Potomac hit General Lee's forces reinforced by Thomas Stonewall Jackson's forces in what became the bloodiest uh, single day of fighting. Total casualties at the Battle of Antietam, also known as uh, the Battle of Sharpsburg, total casualties numbered 12,410 out of 69,000 troops on the Union side and 13,724 of around 52,000 for the Confederates, okay? The Union victory at Antietam would prove decisive as it halted the Confederate advance in Maryland and forced General Lee to retreat into Virginia. So this was a turning point for the Union, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the victory at Antietam. And it's going to be after this that the uh, you're going to have the uh, preliminary Emancipation Proclamation that's going to be issued September 22nd, uh, 1862. All right. Okay, so uh, the Union victory at Antietam would prove decisive as it halted the Confederate advance in Maryland and forced General Robert E. Lee to retreat into Virginia. Still, uh, General George B. McClellan's failure to pursue his advantage earned him scorn of Lincoln and Halleck, who removed him from command in favor of Ambrose E. Burnside. Now, uh, Ambrose E. Burnside's assault on General Lee's troops near Fredericksburg on December 13, 1862, ended in heavy Union casualties and a uh, Confederate victory. He was promptly replaced by um, Joseph Fighting Joe Hooker, General Joseph Hooker, and both armies settled into winter quarters across the uh, Rappahannock River from each other. Now, after the Emancipation Proclamation, January 1st, 1863, Lincoln had used the occasion of the Union victory at Antietam to, to issue a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which was September 22nd, 1862. The preliminary Emancipation Proclamation uh, stated that all that the uh, it, it stated that all the uh, slaves in the territories in rebellion would be free by January 1st, 1863, if those territories did not come back into the Union. The, the, the Emancipation Proclamation was a military strategy to bring the South back into the Union. It wasn't about freeing the slaves. The, the enslaved Africans were the biggest asset of the Confederacy. They were using them to dig dishes, dig, dig, dig ditches and uh, cook food and all different types of things like this, build uh, build structures, etc. okay? So the union is trying to rob the Confederacy of their biggest asset. And because of Antietam, this was a turning point. And actually, if we look at, uh, we look at this piece here, let me see how much time we have left. Okay, we'll wrap up in a few minutes. Um, if we look at the piece on 
the Emancipation Proclamation here, it deals with it deals with the uh, turning point in the Civil War and the Battle of Antietam. Uh, let me see, Lincoln, Antietam, Battle of Antietam. Okay, Lincoln's opportunity came. Okay, because his cabinet told him to wait to issue the Emancipation Proclamation until there was a big victory by the Union troops, until there was a big victory by the Union troops, so the Union would not look desperate. Uh, so this here is from history.com. Uh, this day in history, September 22nd, 1862, Lincoln issues Emancipation Proclamation. This was the initial one. Uh, let's see. Okay. In July of 1862, Lincoln informed his cabinet that he would issue an Emancipation Proclamation, but that it would exempt so-called border states which had slaveholders but remained loyal to the Union. It would exempt so-called border states that had slaveholders but stayed loyal to the Union. His cabinet persuaded him to make the announcement, to wait to make the announcement until after a Union victory. Lincoln's opportunity came following the Union win at the Battle of Antietam in September 1862. So we just talked about September 17, 1862, the Battle of, An An Battle of Antietam, which was a big victory for the Union. On September uh, 22, 1862, Lincoln announced that enslaved people in areas still in rebellion within 100 days would be free. So that'd be January 1st, 1863. January 1st, 1863, Lincoln issued the final Emancipation Proclamation which declared that all persons held as slaves within the rebel states, quote, are, are and henceforward shall be free. The proclamation also called for the recruitment and establishment of black military units among the Union forces. An estimated 180,000 African-Americans went on to serve in the army while another 180 of well, another 18,000 served in the Navy, the Union Navy. After the Emancipation Proclamation, backing the Confederacy was seen as favoring slavery. After the Emancipation Proclamation, backing the Confederacy was seen as, backing the Confederacy was, was, was seen as favoring slavery. It became impossible for anti-slavery nations such as Great Britain and France who had been friendly to the Confederacy to get involved on behalf of the South. The Emancipation Proclamation also unified and strengthened Lincoln's party, the Republican Party, helping them stay in power for the next two decades, even after uh, Lincoln. Uh, so, you know, uh, Johnson, Andrew Johnson is going to be succeeded by uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was a general for the Union Army, okay, during the Civil War. The proclamation was a presidential order and not a law passed by Congress. 
it was it was an executive order emancipation proclamation it was it was an executive order so lincoln then pushed for an anti-slavery amendment to the u.s constitution to ensure its permanency because an executive order can be overturned by a future president with the passage of the 13th amendment which is ratified december 6 1865 slavery was eliminated throughout america although african-americans would face another century of struggle before they began to gain equal rights in the in the u.s a century after the passage of the emancipation proclamation uh lincoln's handwritten draft of the final emancipation proclamation was destroyed in the chicago fire of 1871 today the original official version of the document is a uh, version of the document is housed in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. So read this piece here from history.com. This day in history, September 22nd, uh, 1862, Lincoln issues Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, so you can check that out also. All right, now let's go back here. Uh, let's go to this. How you all like this type of information give us a thumbs up give us a heart give us a like on this broadcast let us know post here on the broadcast let us know how you like this type of information this is class number six of a 10-week online course that i teach we're going to do 12 sessions this time instead of 10. Uh, ancient kemet the moors and the ma'afa understanding the transatlantic slave I'm sorry, from the civil war to the civil rights movement and black power 1865 and 1968 understand the transatlantic slave trade that's the class i teach on saturdays normally i do this class here on sundays this is class number six uh normally we do this at our online school but today i decided to broadcast it i was going to do the class today but i decided to do it uh here on our social media platforms and make the class free today you can register for this 10-week online class it's on sale 60 dollars regularly 130 dollars we have the information here on the thread of the broadcast and it's at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. All right. Um, so Lincoln justified his decision as a wartime measure, uh, Emancipation Proclamation, and did not go so far as to free enslaved people in the border states loyal to the Union. Some 186,000 uh, African-American soldiers would join the Union Army by the time the war ended in 1865 and about 38,000 lost their lives. Okay, uh, okay, so you can read the rest of that there. Vicksburg, okay. Uh, Ulysses says Grant. In March of 1864, Lincoln put uh, Ulysses S. Grant in supreme command of the Union armies, replacing Halleck, leaving William Tecumseh Sherman, William T. Sherman, and control in the West. Grant headed to Washington, where he led the Army of the Potomac uh, towards Lee's troops in Northern Virginia, despite heavy Union casualties in the Battle of the Wilderness and, and at uh, Spotsylvania, both May 1864, at Cold Harbor early June, and the key in the key rail center of Pittsburgh uh, in June of 1864. Uh, General Ulysses S. Grant pursued a strategy of attrition putting Petersburg under siege for the next nine months. All right, uh, let's see. Well, 
Okay, so do with William Sherman. Meanwhile, exhausted by the Union siege of Petersburg and Richmond, uh, General Robert E. Lee's forces made a last uh, attempt at resistance, attacking and captured the federal controlled uh, Fort Stedham on March 25th, 1864. And um, an immediate, uh, sorry, that'd be 1865. An immediate reversed the victory, however. And on the night of April 2nd to, uh, to April 3rd, Robert E. Lee's forces evacuated Richmond, Virginia. For most of the next week, uh, Ulysses says Grant and Meade pursued Confederates along the Appomattox River, okay, uh, in Virginia, finally exhausting their possibilities for escape. General Ulysses S. Grant accepted General Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, 1865. On the eve of the victory, the Union lost its great leader. Uh, the, uh, the So we know that uh, Abraham Lincoln, he shot at the Ford Theater April 14th, 1865 by John Wilkes Booth. Lincoln dies the following morning, April 15th, 722 a.m. He shot one time by John Wilkes Booth, okay? Uh, Sherman, General Sherman received General Joseph E. Johnson's surrender at Durham um, Station, North Carolina, on April 26th, effectively uh, ending the Civil War. Well, just, uh, Joseph E. Johnson, General Joseph E. Johnson is going to surrender uh, then, but he's going to go on until 1866. Yeah, General Joseph E. Johnson surrenders April uh, 26. But uh, the Civil War is going to continue to a much lesser extent and officially come to an end in August of 1866. All right. So that deals with uh, the Civil War. So next class, we'll get into the Reconstruction era. 1865 to 1877, which is a period of time when African-Americans are making a lot of advances and only land. And we have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment uh, that take place. We're going to, uh, we have the um, Civil Rights Act of 1866. Civil rights didn't start with Dr. King and the Montgomery bus boycott. Civil rights goes back to 1866. So we're going to see this and we're going to see it's going to be political violence that helps to bring about an end to Reconstruction also. Okay, you can register for this 10-week online course that I teach uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. We have the information at our website, uh, our new website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. The class is on sale, $60, regularly $130. And uh, we have it in a bundle pack. Okay, we have it in the bundle pack also for, uh, it's regularly $130. We have it in the bundle pack for $100. You get that class and the second class I teach, which normally is on Saturdays, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We're going to post a link here for the bundle pack, and it's at our website, uh, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com also. Uh, so you get both classes for $100. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can use this information also with your children. I would say the information is PG-13, okay? So right on the homepage of the website, we have the information for the bundle pack. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, and uh, you, you'll get a 50% uh, discount. 
Okay, you can also support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills. And we have that information at our website also. Remember, right now is correct wrong behaviors, not over till we win Wakanda forever. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Thanks for joining us today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.